See you later. That's it, folks. <laughs> Episode number? 27. And then welcome to Myth Take, a fresh take on ancient myth. I'm Darren. I'm Allison. All right, let's get at it. What's going on and today? And we are back in your ears at Good. long last after Good. our unplanned hiatus. And we are back with a, a interesting episode oh, of really? the odyssey i oh. think it's a pretty interesting little just a little just a little episode not one of the major stories but okay. just a little episode that um we think has some interesting points for conversation then what's that well we're not going to get to it yet oh, we're going to make okay. our listeners well oh, if they okay. read the show notes they know but oh. we'll, we'll we'll just make them i'm, I'm make operating them in the dark so i'm just gonna see what's going on here that just means you don't remember what we can oh okay <laughs> so before we get started though <clears throat> We're going to be using a new translation tonight. Mm -hmm. I'm very excited about this. Mm -hmm. This is a beautiful book, hardcover. It's not even out in paperback yet. Just released the end of last or towards the end of last year. I'm not quite sure exactly which month. Uh, the Odyssey, a new translation by Emily Wilson. Mm -hmm. And Emily Wilson is a, a professor of classics at the University of Pennsylvania. And I want to mention as well that our friends at the Endless Knot podcast did an interview episode with Emily Wilson. So we highly recommend that you tune in to that episode as well. But, but finish listening to this one first. Okay. <laughs> so I got this beautiful book for Christmas. I have not finished reading it yet. Um, I've kind of dipped into it to reread some of my favorite passages, but I haven't really done the cover to cover reading of it yet. Mm -hmm. But I thought it might be worthwhile for us to talk a little bit about translation. Mm -hmm. We do um, refer from time to time to the translations we're using and some of the pros and cons of the translations. Yes because we're dealing all of this with translation. And uh, Emily Wilson has a very lovely, it's a very lovely to read translator's note at the beginning. So there's a very lengthy introduction uh, introduction to the Odyssey. Then there's our translator's notes. And then we've got some lovely maps and then the text itself and a little glossary index thing at the back. So I've highlighted kind of some of the key points about translation that Emily Wilson um, points out, and then I just thought we could discuss some of them and kind of our views or opinions sure. of them. So one of the things with dealing with a translation is that every language has its own rhythm and its own kind of poetry to it. Sure. And the archaic Greek um, uh, verse uses a very specific type of poetic meter. So there's a very specific rhythm that the poet um, would use. It's called dactylic hexameters, but we won't go into what that means. Um, but Emily Wilson uses iambic pentameter, which is really very familiar. It's very common. It's what you see in Shakespeare. It's just a yeah the regular rhythm for for English narrative verse. So it's seen in Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, all kinds of uh, all kinds of poets. Mm -hmm. So she points out that her translation has a different music to it mm -hmm. than the original archaic Greek would have. Right. For Homer. <clears throat> And 
she just she made the decision to keep her translation to the exact same length in number of lines as the original. That'd be hard to do considering they're in two different voices. Languages, you mean? Uh, no, in two different like rhythmic voices. Oh yes, yes. So she decided to keep to that um, that restriction for two reasons, I think. Um, one is that otherwise it would become a, a, an even longer poem than it already is yeah. in translation. It would become much longer. But she makes the point that the narrative pace uh, would be different if it, if it were longer in English. So she's trying to um, create a narrative pace in her English translation that matches Homer's narrative pace in mm. the Greek. Nice, I like that. So the idea. story moves along with the same, the same, um, mm -hmm. well, pace, I guess. But yeah. I was looking for a different word. Like cadence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's hard to do too. Now this is getting complicated. Okay, yeah. cool. So the translation that you and I are most familiar with, and probably I suspect a lot of people who have read the Odyssey and the in universe. In university mm -hmm. is this translation by Richmond Lattimore. Mm -hmm. which, Greek lyric. What was the date of that one? 67, 65 and around yeah, there. From the 1960s. Yeah. Um, so Emily Wilson talks about language choices and obviously we just in the years since 1960 the way we use language is a little bit different um, than than it was. So the language choices that she's making are obviously going to be different just at times from what somebody yeah. like Richmond Lattimore yeah, uh, makes. Yeah. But she ha she brings up the idea that um, there's th this idea that if you're translating Homer in English, it's got to be really grand and eloquent and kind of over the top. Mm -hmm. And she points out that kind of these impressive linguistic um, tour de force that yeah. translators like to use isn't really reflective of what the archaic Greek was like, that that um, using that kind of language doesn't make it any more accessible to us as the reader, but it also doesn't make that translation any closer to the Homeric original. Right. Does that make sense? I'm tracking Am, am yep. I explaining that right? Yep. Okay. It, uh, and in fact, you could argue that, that the other versions on the other versions, the other translations are uh, somewhat dated from our perspective, and are an actual impediment to, to understanding because yeah. they are a product of their era and they have prose. They're called prose, but it's far from the common language of prose. It's poetic and for many inaccessible. And I kind of think of Shakespeare. Now, I have no issues with Shakespeare, but um, I know from my teaching experience that students often have a hard time with Shakespeare and reading Shakespeare. And in school, so even like um, like modern ed modern editions of, of Shakespeare, but yeah. the language, the the metaphors, the cliches, all of that is the, yeah. The Elizabethan vernacular is impenetrable to many. Yeah. So Elizabeth Wilson points out in in this discussion in her translator's note that um, Homer wasn't using that kind of language. He was using. If, if I'm understanding her argument correctly, he was using 
archaic Greek language. Like yeah. my, the the language would have been familiar to or somewhat somewhat familiar. Yeah, um, the language. Like it's not. It's he's not using that grandiose language. So then why should you use the grand, use grandiose English? Correct. Yeah, butcher the baker and the candlestick maker. These are the people that listen to Homeric uh, epic in the fifth century or even before, and the people that make it are you know or form it are of the same ilk. So it's just as much in place in the Megaron uh, amongst the Aristoi as it is amongst the common man, the Dean, right, the Demos. And she says here, and I'm quoting from page. 83. Mm -hmm. I also hope to invite readers to respond more actively with the text. Impressive displays of rhetoric and linguistic force are a good way to seem important and invite a particular kind of admiration, but they tend to silence dissent and discourage deeper modes of engagement. A consistently elevated style can make it harder for readers to keep track of what is at stake in the story. My translation is, I hope, recognizable as an epic poem, but it is one that avoids trumpeting its own status with bright, noisy linguistic fireworks in order to invite a more thoughtful consideration of what the narrative means and the way it matters. Mm -hmm. And in the parts that I've read, I certainly think that, uh, that she is achieving that. Mm -hmm. She also talks in the, translation, in the translator's notes about some of the issues around certain... Um, traditional ways that certain words have, certain Greek words have been uh, translated in earlier translations. So um, she talks about the word slave, for example, and how some of the different terminology around slave, and there's certain um, loaded connotations with that, with how we use the word, and um, it, it's difficult to match up words it's not just a one-for-one -one substitution that you take this greek word and you plug in this english word right um, because there's a lot of cultural context for each of those words hmm. uh, for both the greek and and the english words and then also um she does talk about um words about women and how how women are described and women and their activities um are are described and where some Past translators have used um, derogatory terms, but those, um, like, um, so I'm thinking of um, the one of the examples she gives is the slaves who have been sleeping with the suitors, mm -hmm. and how that has. Uh, they're often the the translations often use words that pass moral judgment on those female slaves, but that moral judgment isn't necessarily there in the ancient Greek words that were used. I understand. Yeah. So this is all to say that um, translation is really, really complicated. And uh, it's really creating another work. Uh, so it's, yes. it's... It's a hybridized act, isn't it? Yeah, so whenever we're talking about myth, we are working from translation. And I mean, this is why um, if you study classics at university, um, your, your program will probably want you to study a lot of Latin and Greek so that you can have some insight into how that language works. Because unless you're dealing with it in that original language, um, you have to be aware of the nuances of a translated text and the choices that the, edit, uh, that the translator is making. So 
Emily Wilson here, right, in translating Homer, she's created, and she acknowledges this in, in, her, in her translator's notes, she's created another poem. Yes. Um, so. And, that, and, 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 and I think that that would be the case. That is a universal. And it's not, doesn't just particularly apply to this particular translation. The act has something that is done across the board. And I think as classicists, it's interesting because interpretation, well, translation, I'm going to add interpretation to it as something that we, um, we pay a lot of attention to because we have no direct access to any of our, any of the things that we love in this discipline. So all of the things that we care about and all the things that we study and all the things that we interpret and all the things that we analyze, we have no direct access to. So interpretation is the key and translation is the key. Otherwise, we'd have nothing. Yeah. So one of the choices that translators have to make is to what degree they want to be um, really literal with their translation and really reflect you know, exactly what that um, ancient Greek word means or how readable uh, to a modern audience. Yeah, it's an art. Yeah, so um, it makes it handy when you're studying myth to have a, access to a couple of different translations. And um, that way, if you uh, don't have the original Greek or you don't have access to, to the Greek yourself and that study, you can at least, by looking at a couple of different translations, um, pick out some of the nuances of, of the piece and give some thought to why it's been done the way it's done. Yeah, I agree. Total. Yeah. Yeah. So I, like I said, I'm a huge fan of Emily Wilson's um, translation. I much prefer reading it to Richmond Lattimore's, if I can say that, even though his is obviously an excellent, um, an excellent translation as well. I tend to kind of go with the, with the English readability rather than kind of the, mm -hmm. how close it is to the original mm -hmm. in literal terms. Mm -hmm. I think the, the, translator translation you know relationship it like i said it's an art form and each translation you're creating something that's just as much of yourself in many ways so there are personal creations and they put their footprint into their work like the artist does when they create a sculpture or an oil painting that there is a dialogue or a discourse that's going on between not only the primary source in its original text but as it speaks to that person, they act as a filter and make critical choices about how to communicate that that essential element of of the of the primary source that they're translating. And it in, in, in translation and interpretation are in there uh, almost as a you know brother and sister in some way, right? Yeah. So it, it always comes out something always is new. Something always comes out new, and you know they say. You, like these kind of hackney phrases, like every time another translation comes out, I read these things that say things like, like <clears throat> this, you know, like this reanimates Homer. And I'm like, okay, hold on. Already I'm, my alarm bells go off because for me, Homer is, was never inert. So he doesn't really need reanimation. But um, I, I, hey, I'm happy to have a jolt every once in a while with something new to sort of keep things in the collective conscious. But for people like myself and for you, we're kind of already working in that realm. And we're like, wow, here's another one. And here's this. And, and people talk about it. And I collect other translations that other people do of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I even like looking at some of the old stuff from way back when and, and, and just having, a, having fun with with what they, you know, their take on it. Let me put it that way, their take on it. Yeah. It's challenging. 
And one I of like the, a good challenge. One of the really exciting things here with Emily Wilson's translation is that this is the first English, first published English translation by a woman. So mm-hmm. she's really breaking ground in here. And she, and again, she talks in her translator's notes about that awareness of dealing with a poem that very much deals with gender ideas and a lot of um, a lot of ideas around women and men and their roles um, and having and translating that but without adding to it um, trying to so so not complicating it unnecessarily with certain choices of phrases or words in English that carry more nuance than maybe the ancient Greek had for the ancient audience. Yeah, that's a cool idea. You know, considering, I, you know, I never really thought of the gender as being particularly important. But, you know, now that I think about it, even the character like Odysseus and the story of the Odyssey has a feminine quality to it that is very much sort of the flip side of the battlefield heroic narrative of the Iliad. And the, the defining quality of Odysseus is Matus, and that's feminine, right? So it's kind of neat, you know. Uh, well, and and Penelope, and this is a little bit of a rabbit yeah. trail, so yeah. we won't spend too long on it. But Penelope has really interesting resonance with current affairs right now because mm-hmm. um, I live part of my life on Twitter, mm-hmm. and one of the big discussions happening there are all around issues of consent and co- uh, and coercion and harassment. And those kinds of things. And okay. I saw, and I can't take credit for this because I saw somebody tweet this and I can't remember who now, but it really resonated with me that um, Penelope is that person um, of the soft nose um, that aren't listened to because she's in her house and she is, there's suitor after suitor and she's trying to get them to go away gently and they won't listen to her because they don't, they feel they don't have to listen to her and so how that Penelope figure um reson- is is resonant with this very Archaic modern version of the me too hashtag yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah really right you know she's she's the uh she's yeah. the object of unwanted sexual attention yeah she does a pretty right? good job of fending off too fending off yes but they're still stuck in her house yeah. they don't give up they don't go away no they're so, not gonna go away yeah, yeah. right so yeah. anyway like i said i don't want to go too far down that rabbit trail yeah, today well, it but did, it did come it up as an introduction into mary beard's book yes because she speaks about telemachus's first you know push back against you know penelope yeah telemachus in book one the odyssey comes out and says be quiet mom you know what you're talking about i'm sorry that this upsets you but i'm the man of the house now go cry in your bed yeah right so this is the this is the first sort of beginning of that and you're like okay that's going to set the tone (laughs) of what i'm in for (laughs) that's another great book to read but yeah Uh, it's women in power right yeah 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 so another recent um book very well worth reading yeah by, kind of by cross great, fertilizes with this topic <laughs> a great classicist yeah, um yeah so you can tell generally where, where my sympathies and interests lie uh-huh. in the women's stories mm-hmm. but our story for this episode is actually not a, a woman's story um we have picked the end of book eight. I don't even know how we really picked this. To we be picked it randomly. Okay. We, we opened, we initially were going to just do a random passage. Right. And then we kind of realized that maybe 
maybe so we, we do a better podcast. Flipped a couple of pages. <laughs> yeah, I gotcha. we kind of you know it's not true bibliomancy or I anything gotcha. like that, but okay. we just kind of flipped it open. I'm good so, with that. But it's kind of cool because it's it's <clears> a neat little story. It contains so much of what of of the legend of the myth mm-hmm. of Troy in this like two pages. Sure. Um, and then it also engages with a lot of themes that we're always bringing up about um, how you treat strangers and how you treat people who are from outside your community. Yes. Right. And that whole Zania, the guest host relationship. And I th- so to make it kind of interesting, we've got Emily Wilson's translation, but then we also have our old faithful Richmond Lattimore's translation. Yeah. Um, it took a little bit of finessing to kind of figure out because obviously the line numbers don't match up They're close. between translations. They're not like super far off. No. But, uh, they definitely have a different voice, like but you said before. Yeah, and there's definitely some kind of interesting choices of how things um, are presented. And so our plan today is to kind of go through this passage and then kind of pick out little bits to from the Lattimore translation and do some little bits of comparison. In light of the art of translation and the fact that this is translated by Emily Wilson, and then the other one is Richmond Lattimore, a man, and Emily Wilson, a woman, obviously. I think we actually... A man in the 1960s. Yeah, the man in the 1960s. I think that matters, too. Um, I think this passage actually works very well, because um, although it is Odysseus, right, and a specific spot, right, the the idea of the feminine in here is is still uh, evident. So there's lots of uh, connective tissue between this particular episode and episodes that occur in book one, episodes that occur in uh, book 22, um, and even with the situation with Odysseus and Penelope. So the two, it's a mirror. They telegraph to each other. You can kind of tell. It's like, how does a man react? How does a woman react? What is the role of the bard? What is the role of the son? What is, all this stuff is all in there. And so each translator will bring its own particular nuance, and they're not going to be entirely cognizant, I think, of how they portray the men or the women or Odysseus or Penelope. It'd be kind of I've never really I've never thought of it in that gendered uh, perspective before, but um, maybe that'll come up when we when we look through it. Okay, so let's read it. Um, what I'm just trying to think, kind of where's where's a good starting point because mm-hmm. I keep backing up and thinking, oh, we should include that, we should include that, and the reading gets longer and longer. Right. All right. So, As it so often always does. <laughs> so to set it up, I think we've talked about the about the Odyssey before, but just to remind our listeners that the Odyssey isn't told in the in the order that the events happen. So um, Odysseus in the book, Odysseus leaves Calypso's island. Mm-hmm. Poseidon is mad that he's been allowed to go back home because Poseidon's upset with him. Right. We don't know why yet in the story. Not yet, no. Um, and with the help of a minor goddess or nymph and the help of Athena, Odysseus washes up on the shores oh. of Well, Phoenicia. what happened to the raft that he was on when he left Calypso's Island? Well, Poseidon got in the way of oh, that, Oh, I got right? you. Right? Okay. <laughs> Poseidon blasted him with a thunderbolt. Yeah, yeah, so he washes up with no clothes, no possessions, no, no ship, no raft, no men, nothing. Yeah. Ev- and he meets the princess, gone. Nausicaa. Meets the princess who invites him yeah. into, well, gets him some clothes and invites him yeah, to the palace well, to that's meet a, that's her a parents. Very, that's a very 
Yeah, though there's lots of but, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Considering we're the not, light of your Twitter conversation, we're not we're not we're not okay. going there. Okay, All right, we're not. Okay? We're moving ahead. I'm, I'm trying to set this up for our listener here. Oh, listener, yes. listener, listener. There's one of you. That's right. <laughs> Thank God we love you. <laughs> Uh, they just download us a couple hundred times <laughs> each month. Stick to it, faithful listeners. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so he, so Odysseus is hanging out with the Phaeacian king and queen and the court. He's, uh, they've had some games and competitions, and he's showing off his strength, etc., etc. Et and now, kind of at the end of all of these it's celebrations, it's time to eat. And bear in mind, they don't know who he is yet. It's book eight. Somewhere around, I don't know. I've got so like, in Lattimore, it's about four eighty-five, four eighty, and around there in Lattimore. And in Emily Wilson's translation, okay. we're going to start on page two thirty-six. So Odysseus grabs some meat and gives it to a steward or a, a houseboy, mm -hmm. and he says. Go take this meat and give it to, to Demodocus. Despite my grief, I would be glad to meet him. Poets are honored by all those who live on earth. The muse has taught them how to sing. She loves the race of poets. So the houseboy handed it to Demodocus. He took it gladly and everybody took their food. When they had enough to eat and drink, the clever mastermind of many schemes said, You are wonderful, Demodocus. I praise you more than anyone. Apollo, or else the muse, the child of Zeus, has taught you. You tell so accurately what the Greeks achieved and what they suffered there at Troy, as if you had been there or heard about it from somebody who was. So sing the story about the wooden horse, which Epius built with Athena's help. Odysseus dragged it inside into the citadel, filled up with men to sack the town. If you can tell that as it happened, I will say that you truly are blessed with inspiration. So I'm just going to pause yeah. there. I think that's a good pausing. We're, we are going to continue this passage, but we'll just pause there and have have a look here. So Demodocus is the bard yep. at the court of the Phaeacians. Yep. So what's uh, what's what's going on with him? What's what's happening here, Darren? <laughs> Unpack this for us. I don't. I, well, I you know it's a big deal, I guess. But you know, once again, we get a glimpse into Homeric society, right? We get a glimpse into. Uh, the role of the bard, right? Um, this is a court bard in Alcinous's retinue, right? Uh, Demodocus is of described here as being a bard of great fame, of uh, being, uh, you know, instructed by the muses themselves, or even perhaps Apollo. So he's extremely high playoffs, uh, and you know, in a moment of of, and I was about to call it charity, but uh, I'd say more of being magnanimous. He gives a parcel of meat to to Demodocus to sing. And, um, you know, there's been some speculation, too. People were talking about the fact that maybe this is Homer appearing in his own work as Demodocus, as sort of a you know, embedded image. Uh, and kind of give himself a little airtime, maybe, in the, in the song. Uh, but, you know... There's a lot going on in there. Like, there's at one point where in the Odyssey where Odysseus accuses bards of, of spinning tales in order to fill their own bellies, and you know when I see this spot here, here what what's happening, you know rewind to this this section and Odysseus is feeding, uh, is feeding a bard in order to to hear a story, making a request to hear about 
you know, the war at Troy, a specific episode, right? A specific moment, the Trojan horse, right? So I want to unpack some of the language that's sure. been used here. And I know we've got some interesting comparisons with Lattimore mm-hmm. um, as well. So um, just with that um, first speech that, that Odysseus um says he said despite my grief i would be glad to meet him mm-hmm. odysseus has been down and gloomy the phaeacians don't know why yet because mm-hmm. they don't know who he is um but he says the muse has taught them how to sing she loves the race of poets and right there we should know something about poetry that i am sure we have harped on numerous times in our various passage translations but the muses are the daughters of Mnemosyne and Zeus in myth. They yeah. are the daughters of memory. And they can tell the truth, but they can also tell lies. True. So, uh, so just the invoking the muse, muses, referencing the muses is a way for a poet to indicate their authority, but it doesn't necessarily mean that what he says is true or that or to what degree it's true or if he and it's not deliberate line on the bard's part but it's that the muses can tell both truth and lie and make both sound sweet <laughs> yeah it's a recollection it's an yeah. unforgetting right aletheia means true things so it's there's no you know it doesn't really indicate that what you're getting is like a record right yeah you're re- just recalling it's a recollection they recall as the bard recalls right through the power of his memory the muses sort of inspire him to sing these songs, right? Now, in the Lattimore translation, if mm-hmm. you want to just find that spot that we um, had found sure. earlier, um, he says, uh, uh, sorry, the poem says, he took it gladly, so Demodocus took the meat gladly, and everybody took their food. When they had had enough to eat and drink, the yes. clever mastermind of many schemes, mm-hmm. and that's how she's translated um, yes. Odysseus's epithet there, yes. The clever mastermind of many schemes said. So how does Lattimore translate that? Well, those particular lines are, uh, there's a a fairly faithful uh, to each other. Uh, They put forth their hands to the good things that lay readily before them. Slightly a little bit more, you know, highfalutin, but that's what you get. But when they had put away their desire for eating and drinking, they have sated themselves. They eat first. Now it's kind of entertainment conversation time. Odysseus, dull resourceful. Right, uh, spoke to Demodocus, saying, "Not the cunning." Yeah. yeah. So the so um, the, yeah, they put their they put forth their hands to the good things that lay ready before them. Yeah, but when things. they but when they had put away mm-hmm. their desire for eating and drinking, Odysseus the resourceful spoke to Demodocus. Mm-hmm. So that little those kind of three lines three lines there in Lattimore come down to like, and everybody took their food, and when they had enough to eat and drink. Mm-hmm. Um, just to show kind of the the different choices that have been made with mm-hmm. the language there, and um, Emily Wilson makes mention in her translator notes about epithets. So epithets, when you're dealing with poetry that is oral, that it's spoken and listened to, um, she says epithets are a way of grounding the listener and in the poem. But when we're reading it and with the way we read and absorb information in our culture, that those epithets can kind of bog things down yeah. for, for us reading. So that she has chosen to vary the ways in which she translates 
yeah. th- these epithets. So these these epithets are kind of formulaic in the ancient Greek. They are. Um, but she's chosen to vary it with it. Good and idea. here, um, I like, she hasn't even given an Odysseus's name here, just the clever mastermind of many schemes. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's it's interesting that, uh, and in both translations, right, because um, he's called here in Lattimore's Odysseus the, the resourceful. resourceful. But it reminds us that Odysseus himself is not reliable he could be telling the a truth telling a lie he could be scheming something so kind of what's what's his plan things aren't always as straightforward as he says or presents we'll, that they we'll are. eventually get to be yeah and yeah. so so i kind of think here and we're still in the moment here yeah so i kind of think here that perhaps he is testing the phaeacians by asking that by asking the poet to sing about Troy and to sing about him mm-hmm. specifically, that he's kind of testing them. Like, what do they know about about me before I reveal that I am who I am? That's cool. That's what I think. Yeah, I like do that idea. I don't know. I got a couple That's ideas cool. on that. I think. Go for it. Well, one, well, the first thing that comes to mind, and I haven't thought much about it, but is the notion that uh, you know, because you this is you're trying to answer a question. The question is. Why is it that Odysseus at this moment in the Odyssey asks for this particular song, right? So there's the question, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there are a number of ways of grappling with it. But the first thing that comes to my mind is thinking about this situation back in Ithaca in book one with Phimius, the household Ithacan bard, singing a song by request from the suitors. And what did the suitors want to hear? They want to hear about the return home from Troy, a Nostoy story, part of the epic cycle that epic cycle that's lost. And and Telemachus is there, and Phimius picks up the harp and he begins to sing. Now Penelope hears that in her apartments, comes down and says, "Play something else that's bringing me grief." Well, look at the parallel, right? Look what we're about to look. It's exactly what's about to happen here. Okay, so but Telemachus intercedes and says. Sorry, it's the right of the bard when they are inspired to sing what they want, right? So I can't stop that. Besides, I'm the man now. Go back, right? And then now, flat flash forward to here we are in book eight, where we have a very similar situation, right? And Odysseus, there's a bard. Odysseus gives him a gratuity. It's Xenia, right? And he asks for a particular song, not of the return, but from an episode in the Trojan War, a very specific episode in the Trojan War of the of the Trojan horse, right? The description of the Trojan horse. Spill the beans. Oh, anybody doesn't <laughs> Actually, know that. I think I already mentioned that. But Odysseus dragging and dragging it inside. Mm-hmm. Um, you also had a really good point when we when we were talking about this passage mm-hmm. earlier mm-hmm. about this requesting this particular story being part of Odysseus coming back to himself. Yeah. Um, he's been through this necusis, literally and figuratively, yeah. right? Because he has been washed up out of yeah. out of the water with nothing on. Yeah. So he's been through through this necusis, like yeah. a like a um, like a rebirth almost. And here's he 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 needs to know yeah. who he is and where he where he's, he's going defeated. and what his purpose yeah. is again, right? Yeah. He hasn't exactly so been reborn yet. But yeah. It's it's coming. Yeah. So he's, he's 
So he's in this very vulnerable place. He doesn't know who he is. And he doesn't know who he he's is. He's as close to his, he's as very close to the anonymity that is being expressed in all of Book 8. They don't know who he is. And Odysseus, in some regard, doesn't even really know who he is. Spiritually and physically, he's been drowned by Poseidon. He's been destroyed. He has nothing. He's lost everything that we have at this point, everything that he was, even, even loss of self. And that's a frightening concept for a hero. So he has to evoke, he has to rekindle his whole sort of heroic identity. And he does it in a, by this specific request. And it's selfish, but man, is it Odyssean. It's very heroic, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, and, and I don't, and he kind of, you know, yeah, it's a way to, it has an effect on him. He's wounded. His guard is down, right? So, um, yeah, I, that, I, I like that idea. I like that idea too, right? And in, in, in this case, Demodocus would be Phemius. In this case, Odysseus would be parallel to the suitors. And in this case, Penelope would be very similar to, the, to Elsinus when he tells Demodocus to stop. Penelope tells them to stop. Demodocus yeah. plays. Phemius plays. Odysseus yeah. requests. The suitors request. So the stories are layered. They're kind of parallel, right? And at that point, like Phaeacia, Skieria, where they are, Skieria is a fairy tale land, right? It's not a real spot. It's the last stop in the folktale motif before we kind of pierce the bubble. He reclaims who he is and gets back home. These guys are going to be, you know, these guys, these people, this, these people of Poseidon, by the way, right, who will suffer greatly as a result of it. But they're almost threatened with total annihilation. Right? They will be the ones that will be the agent of his deliverance back home. So it's Nostas with the thing. But before we get there, yeah. I want to just come back to this these few lines here. Yeah. And what we see here, what Odysseus is asking for, he's been given gifts, he's been given food, so he's yeah, been given he's checked all the boxes. Except now he's asking for his playoffs. He's asking for his glory because this is what Homeric warriors yeah. fight for. This is this is what they want mm -hmm. is to be re remembered in song mm -hmm. by the poets. And I would add, this is what a good guest can do for a host. And this is what a good host can do for a guest. Be part of Zania to reconnect their identity. Because at the beginning, you're supposed to maintain anonymity in all encounters in Zania. But then once the protocol has been met, you're supposed to introduce yourself because you're now protected by the ritual. So even if you find out that, that you were enemies, you can't really do anything about it. You're supposed to reset the button. Mm -hmm. So it's a major sort of um, like a, a nexus, cultural and civilization, like a Hellenic um, quality. With Zania, you cannot ask, or no. you're not supposed to, yeah. ask who your guest is until after you have fed them and they have and and, and they have washed right. and that that eating together is community. a bonding yeah. of 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 community right. and then you can find out who they are right but and and zania is such an important concept that it's governed by zeus the the chief right. the, the chief god himself and you're even supposed to exchange gifts at the time yeah 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 so i would like to go on mm -hmm. and read about the song sure so a god inspired the bard to sing. He started with how the Greeks set fire to their camp and then embarked and sailed away. Meanwhile, Odysseus brought in a gang of men into the heart of Troy inside the horse. The Trojans pulled the thing up to the summit and sat around discussing what to do. Some said, we ought to strike the wood with swords. Others said, drag it higher up and hurl it down from the rocks. But some said they should leave it to pacify the gods. 
so it would be. The town was doomed to ruin when it took that horse, chock full of fighters bringing death to Trojans. And he sang how the Achaeans poured from the horse in ambush from the hollow and sacked the city, how they scattered out, destroying every neighborhood. Like Ares, Odysseus with Menelaus rushed to find Deophobus' house, and there he won at last through dreadful violence, thanks to Athena. So the poet sang. So this mm -hmm. is where in Homer yeah. we have the story of the Trojan horse, which yeah. is the which one is... thing everybody seems to know about the story of Troy is the horse. And that is the story of the Trojan horse right there. Yeah. And it's not even in the Iliad. And it's not it's in, in the, the Iliad. Odyssey. It's just, it's just this little, it's, yeah. it, well, I shouldn't say little, it's 20 lines. There you yeah. go. Yeah. You got to go to Virgil too, to get a little bit more, but let's just but, stick with the Greek. Yeah, yeah. But that's Roman and yeah. that's, that's, uh, that's, that's different. So right. um, I wanted to compare this as well with the, um, with the Lattimore with version? With the Lattimore version. So, I find they're fairly similar. Um, okay. He spoke, and the singer, stirred by the goddess, began and showed them his song, beginning from where the Argives boarded their well-benched ships and sailed away after setting fire to their shelters. But already all these others who were with famous Odysseus were sitting inside the horse in the place where the Trojans assembled, for the Trojans themselves had dragged it up to the height of the city, and now it was standing there, and the Trojans seated around it talked endlessly, and three ways of thought found favor, either to take the pitiless bronze to it and hack open the hollow horse, or to drag it to the cliff's edge and topple it over, or let it stand where it was as a dedication to blandish the gods, and this last way was to be the end of it, seeing that the city was destined to be destroyed when it had inside it the great horse made of wood, with all the best of the, of the Argives sitting within and bearing death and doom for the Trojans. He sang then how the sons of the Achaeans left their hollow hiding place and streamed from the horse and sacked the city, and he sang how one and another fought through the steep citadel, and how in particular Odysseus went with godlike Menelaus, like Ares, to find the house of Deophobus, and there, he said, he endured the grimmest fighting that ever he had, but won it there too with great-hearted Athena aiding. So you can see right there how um, Lattimore uses a lot more words. He does. <laughs> he's, he's very wordy. Yes, he's and got a mouthful. A, it, it is a mouthful. Mm -hmm. So, um, so you, you can see how he's trying to trying to kind of. It feels to me, and mm -hmm. I mean, I don't have the original Greek, and maybe someday we will do mm -hmm. that, but I'm not brave enough to to do that now. But um, we it seems like he's trying to ring like he's trying to work in there every last drop of meaning that each greek word holds and at one greek word can hold a lot of meaning yeah uh, because it's a highly inflected lang language yeah. and and there's a lot of nuances um and that kind of thing that can be encapsulated within within one word so it, the Lattimore translation has a lot of rich detail but in terms of what we're used to reading in English, something like Emily Wilson's translation here, it moves along, it flows, mm -hmm. and it uses words and language and wordy that's very familiar. And interestingly, too, that she has, um, like, she gives direct it, it, uh, direct quotations. Mm -hmm. Some said, quote, we ought to, to strike the wood with swords. Others said, quote, drag it higher up and hurl it down the rocks. Whereas in Lattimore, that's all that's all reported. Yeah. Personally, for me, I find the having the direct speech makes it more immediate and a 
more engaging for me. That's just my personal, yeah, my personal preference. But anyway, that's just a few notes about the translation. Yeah, it is. So what about the content? <laughs> and I like the translation, and, and, and it's an interesting thing because often in Homer, the line is the thought. And the most intimate thought is the thought that's expressed in first person. So the choice to move things into second and third person automatically disassociates the audience in a way. It adds a filter. So when you speak with I, and I think, and I am, or so he said, right, it, 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 it changes it. Right. It, it, I, it, I like the there's always going to be that barrier that we spoke about earlier. But and I don't in any way want to sound like I'm, I'm, I'm dumping on one or the other. Yeah. Um, it just it comes back to thinking about who they're translating for and what they're trying to do when when they're translating. Yeah. So I, like get, I get that. But I would add that at the time he was a much older man and he was educated at a much earlier time where that type of vernacular already a much older man at that particular time. So when he learned this art, right, it was of a time that was, you know, much before that, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. when he was beginning to kind of crystallize his thoughts on the art of translation. So it was probably, you know, it's revolutionary for its day, but. But for somebody encountering myth, a, a myth like this for the first time. Which is something we always think about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's going to be a little more discouraging, or maybe not discouraging, but that's going to take a little bit more work so to get work. through. Um, Plain work, simple. Yeah. 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 So let's have a look at what's happening in the episode itself. Sure. Okay. So Greeks set fire to their camp and embarked and sailed away. Oh, yeah. The old... Uh... This is the ruse that, yeah. that Odysseus yeah. came up with. Mm -hmm. Clever Odysseus mm -hmm. came up with. Yeah. And Resourceful, this was... Wily, cunning. Build a wooden horse, stuff it full of, full of warriors, and pretend you leave town. Sure. <laughs> so the ships don't sail very far away, but the Trojans think they have left. And yeah. why a horse, Darren? Why a horse? Why a horse and not... When is a horse I don't anything know. other than a horse? Uh, you know, why a horse? Uh, well, we talked a little bit about it before. But, I know, um, but our listeners haven't. <laughs> God Poseidon, right, is associated with horses. Uh, and you're going to say, well, big deal. What's Poseidon got to do with it? Well, Poseidon's right in the story of the Iliad. He's a pro-Greek, right? Uh, he wants to see this city destroyed uh, along with everybody else. Uh, he doesn't even though particularly like Zeus's defense uh, of the even, city. Even though initially Poseidon is connected with the founding of Troy. Yeah, his connection to the founding of Troy. Him and Apollo were responsible for building the primeval walls of Troy. Um, Apollo received uh, payment, uh, and no, uh, Poseidon did not. Right, I think that's what it was. I, I don't remember. So Poseidon has held a grudge against Troy ever since, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I think maybe Apollo got over it. But oh yeah, that's <laughs> it. The Trojans did not reciprocate payment. They didn't pay the gods. They didn't pay Apollo. They didn't pay Poseidon. Poseidon, you know how mean spirit he is. Yes, he holds a grudge in perpetuity, right? Well, Apollo, he's been holding a grudge yeah, against Odysseus yeah, for a good long, long time. time. You know, and it's it, it says something about the character of Odysseus. To use that god who is his uh, protagonist, right? That to to gain entry into the you know unsolvable riddle itself of Troy. But well, I don't think I don't think Poseidon is his enemy yet. Poseidon becomes yeah. his enemy on the way home. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's right. I don't know. 
Well, you do know when you just oh. said it. That's absolutely <laughs> correct. But I'm just sort of saying, you know, like but yes. the, what the Odyssey and the Iliad do flow together, and, it, and, and Odysseus and Poseidon do have a relationship. It's not really huge right now. Uh, but it will come to bear bitter fruit. This is like one of those things, you know, like the fruit of the poisonous tree argument. But what you've got here is the Greeks, according to Odysseus, using the image of the horse, which is sacred to Poseidon, to gain uh, entry in through the walls of Troy. And they're giving it up as an offering because they want to sail across the sea, and Poseidon is the god of the sea. So to, in order to ensure a successful nostos, or return home, they need to propitiate Apollo, uh, and they will do it by building a beautiful wooden statue of, of, of a horse and offer it up as a sacrifice to, to Apollo. Poseidon. To, I mean, to Poseidon, yeah. I mean, yeah, right? And, you know, and then they're going to take off, but it's all under false pretext. So I have to interject here yeah. with a first-hand story. First-hand report. Yes, of Troy. Yeah. I have been to Troy. Okay. Um, and in fact, I just saw on Twitter, friend of the show, Ryan Stitt, uh, retweeted an article that there's a new museum just opening up at yeah. Troy. Yeah, there is. Um, UNESCO World Heritage Site. I was at Troy in 2009 mm -hmm. as part of a study tour. And Troy is an absolutely fascinating site for all kinds of archaeological reasons. And... Um, very long, long, long history of habitation. Many different versions of Troy were built on the same spot. So I will post a few pictures on the blog of Troy and um, for for our listeners. But the story yeah. I have to tell is that our, our tour guide. So whenever you do have a tour, have a group of people over, over a certain size, right. you have to hire an officially sanctioned Turkish tour guide to go with your group and be your tour guide. Got it. Which can be really interesting. They have a lot of knowledge, but then sometimes, you know, when you are with a group of highly specialized people with highly specialized knowledge, mm -hmm. sometimes their knowledge doesn't quite contribute. Okay. So this tour guide told us that he didn't think it was a horse. He said it was Poseidon. Gates are too small. It was the seahorse. Good. I like that So that, that was logic. his theory was that it Bring should that have been a seahorse. Ring him up. So that's what I think of now. Well, that's the story I think of whenever I think of Troy. Sure, of course. Yeah. Because, you know, you look at Poseidon as the god of the sea and you say, yeah. why a horse? So but, why a horse? <laughs> what, uh, well, Poseidon, well, like, why is Poseidon associated with horses? Well, he is a god of horses. Yeah, but why? Well, because the horses are aristocratic and powerful and they pound the earth with their hooves like bulls. She is also associated with, and uh, he's a god of earthquakes as well. Yes. So it's part of the strength and violence and potency and vitality of Poseidon and the emotional quality of Poseidon. He's a really elemental. He is god. Yeah, he's a he's yeah. a, he's a, a very emotional, right? And uh, quick to judge, so, slow to change, yes. long to hold a grudge. Yeah. So this story connects, it doesn't, isn't mentioned, isn't directly mentioned here, mm -hmm. but we're told there's a discussion of what to do with the Trojan war, the Trojan horse. Yeah. And this is where the story of Cassandra. Right. And they, they look at it and they're like, hey, what should we it. do? And Cassandra is a prophetess of Apollo 
And uh, I think she rebuffed his advances, so he cursed her that she would always tell the truth, but no one would ever believe her. Mm-hmm. There's a good, <laughs> in light of our, yeah. in light of our earlier Cassandra. conversation, there's an interesting case study, Cassandra. Yeah. So uh, Cassandra is somebody who who always tells the, like it tells the truth and nobody believes. So in complex. in myth, she tells them, no, it's going to. Um, you know, it's going to bring about your destruction, yeah. destroy it. And yeah. I think one of the gods... Um, Helen comes out and walks around and plays a coy little game with them, which I find fascinating. Great in her own. But doesn't Poseidon... Poseidon kills Lacaion, which yes, is... Yes, he sends, he sends yeah, some he's about serpents to, out of the sea or to something. To kill him and his son, yeah. To, be, because they're going to upset the plan. Yeah, they're, they're going to spill the beans. Yeah. yeah. So there's a whole lot of fascinating myths that Homer doesn't mention. He just says that there's this discussion about what what are we going to do about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, you know, there's all these other strands that come out at this point in the story. Yeah. And so the consensus then is they're going to leave it to pacify the gods. Well, yeah, they want to bring it in. They well, they have it. brought it in, but yeah. they're but but they're going yeah. to keep it. They're going, yeah. you know, this is a yeah. If if they've left this for the gods and then we destroy it. Well, this is part. We're going to be in really big trouble, right? Yeah, but it, it, see how clever it is, because mm-hmm. it ensures its preservation. The trick ensures not only its preservation, but ensures that it would be brought into the city. They tear down even their own wall to bring it in because it's too big to bring in, right? And aren't they the Trojans? Um, don't they generally have a reputation of being very pious? They are. So Odysseus has played on their piety. Totally. Totally, he's yeah. totally played them. He can't. They can't help. They can't help it. What they're doing now is identical to what they've always done, and they they've admitted people into their society. Think of Helen, who have brought death, right, mm-hmm. and who have brought destruction, who have brought violence to their community. Yeah. And there's lots of interesting discussion that parallels Helen and, and the horse. Totally. And uh, you um, were talking about about the feminine aspect yeah. that the horse. Is pregnant with death. With being pregnant with death. And Greek being, warriors. Yeah. Yeah. They, it, it will be brought in like Helen was brought in, yeah. right? It was brought in, Helen was brought in by her husband, right? Paris. Yeah. Husband two. Uh, she's on go- husband three. Yeah. <laughs> by the end of it. And she's currently on Deiphobus. Yeah. But brought in under the pious pretext, right, of wedding, right, of father-in-law. Yeah. of welcoming a daughter-in-law in, like a good host would do. The Trojans are fatalistically nice. Yes. Right? They're like the sort of mirror They're image of Sodom nice. and Gomorrah. They're too yeah. nice for their own good. They're, they're destroyed for their godly piety, not yeah. for their ungodly piety, like yeah. in a biblical sense. Yeah. Right? So they bring them in, and they bring in the Trojan horse, right? And when Helen's brought in, it's she's pregnant with death, Ten years of Iliadic conflict, of battlefield destruction, yeah. right? And then this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Is it victory? Wow, talk about a pure victory. It's not, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, it's at what cost, you know? And just as a little trivia side note here, this is actually not the first time that Troy has been destroyed in okay. myth, right? Okay. Because remember, we have Heracles and his buddies in myth. Yes, Telamon. Yes, yeah. have gone off and waged war. Yeah. With with Troy, so there's an even so yeah, this, this is just a, this is just a little side a yeah. side note for our listeners. Sure, there is an even earlier mytho like oh, uh, when the heroes were even better. 
Yeah. All it took was Telamon, Heracles, it take them 10 and years. about 15 guys in an afternoon with a case of beer, and they knocked that thing over. In fact, Telamon was the first guy through the gate. He was about to be. It wasn't even Heracles himself, right? Yeah. And he had to stop, but he went, I better let Heracles in, otherwise it's going to be And that was about a woman too, wasn't it? Yeah, it was about uh, yeah, a tro Trojan princess. Her name I'm foggy on the me. details of that one. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of an oldie right now. Yeah, well, we'll yeah. get back to you on that one. Yeah. yeah, but anyway, that's just a little side effect. Oh, but this wasn't the it's first. It's always about yeah. women. Yeah. It's always about women. Yeah. So that, you know, when I think about this idea about the this situation with the, with the horse being pregnant with death, and uh, parallel to the notion that Helen in, in, is like metaphorically pregnant with death. She never conceives a child, but she conceives, she gives birth to a terrible war, mm -hmm. right? And look, you have Paris, right? But then look what the horse gives birth to. Like, literally, it gives birth to Greek warriors, right? Mm -hmm. But mentioned in them are, chief amongst them are. Odysseus and Menelaus. Right, and who are so, they? The husband and the oath writer, right? Because it was Odysseus's idea to come up with this oath of Tyndarius that... They're the they reason. activated the whole damn thing. They're in the, first the reason place. there's this yeah. war going on. Right. So here are two husbands. Here are two Homeric heroes, right? Here are two husbands again, right? And then we have this 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 analogy of birth. That birth that gives gives life to to death, right? And they go in and they kill another husband. Yeah. So I I just want to just come back to some yeah. of the language here because sure. I just I love the way that this sounds. Right. The town was doomed to ruin when it took that horse, chock full of fighters, bringing death to Trojans. Bingo. And he sang how the Achaeans poured from the horse in yeah. ambush from the hollow and sacked the city. What a beautiful. And then metaphor. how they scattered out, destroying every neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And then. Um, Odysseus is likened to Ares, who is mm -hmm. just that brute bloodlust yeah um and odysseus and menelaus rush together and with the help of athena so they have the bloodlust like aries is just that kind of elemental war mm -hmm. and then they have athena and she's cunning and she's about planning and strategy mm -hmm. and that kind of thing and so kind of it's got the best of both worlds Why not? with yeah. them right there right and through dreadful violence. So this was a contest worthy of heroes, presumably. Yeah. They kill... Um, Deiphobus, brutally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Menelaus is at his Aristea here. And this is his greatest moment. And Odysseus is a midwife of death here, right? Menelaus is, 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 the, is, the, is the chief hero in this moment. The two of them are in a pretty close partnership. They never really work together too much, except for here in this context of the final destruction of Troy and this birth idea with with midwives and wives and husbands, right? And Deiphobus and Menelaus and, right, and all this stuff, right? And it's like exactly the same as kind of what's going to happen eventually when Odysseus gets back home. Right? Mm -hmm. He's going he's gonna to do the exact same thing. He's going to pour in there. And he's going to stand next to his son just like he stood next to Menelaus. And they're going to bring terrible death onto another household, a sort of micro version of Troy, when the suitors are slaughtered. Over another woman. Mm -hmm. Right? Penelope. So, we're going to leave it there. Okay. Because we're, we're at an hour. And we've got to do some viewer mail. And we've got viewer. listener mail. That sounds like a television show. <laughs> listener mail. Thank you. Um, I do just want to, just to kind of just wrap this episode up. Just, yeah. just for Just for our readers, since we're right, at, right towards the end of book sure. eight. 
This brings Odysseus to tears. It does, yeah. Try the king try. notices, and he's like, whoa, this is not right. Like, we cannot yeah. be upsetting. They've already upset him once. Yeah. Like, we cannot, you know, be 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 upsetting our guests, yeah. because that's just not what you it's do. A, it's affecting him. And so, as you have already said, he yeah. tells the, the poet to stop, but then he questions yeah. Odysseus. Who are you? Yeah. And, and, and what are you doing here? And mm -hmm. then, start of book nine is Odysseus saying, he says, I'm Odysseus, this yeah. is where I'm from. And then he starts to tell his song, yeah. his version. And this is where we get kind of everything that's happened between him leaving Troy and washing up on the beach. Right, he gets to play bard so in a section that yeah. is known as the Periphrastic Report. Yeah, so he's reporting on his activities. But again, we always have to bear in mind that he is clever. So... Yeah. Um, kind of plays with my mind, which is why I love this idea. When I first heard it, I just sat there and I just was like, ugh. He's um, making he could it be, all up. He, he could be He's making it making all up. making it all up. It could, he could, he could, He's it a could be a complete, a complete lie. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. it's fiction to start with. Why but not? Anyway, yeah. so that is our little episode with Emily Wilson's new translation, which you will definitely, definitely be hearing more of on the podcast. It's a lot of fun. Because I quite like it. Um, and some of our thoughts about translations and, and that kind of thing. Some more of that's going to be coming up, but we have to do a viewer mail. Okay, so viewer let's move mail. on. Let's viewer move mail. on. Oh, Insert did like you a want bell to... noise. It goes, bring, boom, there we go. Okay, excellent. Go. Yeah. <laughs> Listener mail. So we got an email today. Today, yesterday. Mm. Um, which... <laughs> so I'm <laughs> uncommittal to that. Yeah. <laughs> 15th. New semester started. It's it all over. runs together. Yeah. From Andrew Whiteman. And we want to say thank you very much, Andrew, for your email. And we, Darren will be replying to your email. I um, did, but it, it didn't No, no, go no. Back. You replied to me. Oh, You'll yes, be okay. replying to him oh, okay. on the email. I got you. Because I forwarded it to you. Okay. Complications of technology. Um, so, Andrew writes, Hello, I am a musician originally from Toronto, now Montreal, and more importantly, a student of poetry, the Black Mountain School, Charles Olson, Robert Duncan's line from Pound, and more recently, of myth. I happen to be a big fan of your podcast. Yay, Ooh, yay thank you. Uh, the hermeneutical flexing with chosen text is really inspiring, and the palpable excitement is contagious. We're contagious, Darren. <laughs> I don't think i got to get shots for that. <laughs> okay. The reading. Yes. Myth as oral is not to be taken lightly. So thanks for including that ritual within your cast. We are happy to read. Um, yeah, we're, we're kind of stupid that way. Like we just like, I don't know. It just sort of came like naturally. Like well, you this, have to read it. Yeah, I know. You have to read it. It's like, you know, you talk about it for a while and you say, okay, here, just read this for a yeah. section. Boom. It comes out. If you do, um, if you haven't already, and you do want to hear a really good oral telling of the Trojan War, um, friend of the show, Jeff Wright, from the, oh, what's this podcast called? I'm blanking out on it now. I can picture the logo perfectly in my head. Is that the one with, like, the Corinthian helmet? No, 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 no. Trojan History uh, Podcast? No, no, no. It, no, that, that's not a podcast. Oh, okay. I think that podcast name might be up. <laughs> I think it's just the Trojan War podcast. Tro that's it, Trojan War, <laughs> Trojan War podcast. podcast. Trojan History Podcast. Um, Jeff's a professional storyteller, and he... Yeah, he doesn't read anything. He, he doesn't read... He, he tells works the story. It, he works it, and yeah. he's... He's so, a 21st century homer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, we highly recommend... Punch the buttons. He's excellent. Highly recommend it if you just want to listen to a telling of the story. Yeah. Um, okay. So... 
Andrew's email, after that really long aside, Andrew's email continues. I am writing because I am looking for more material, books or anything really, to deepen my study, Greek and Roman, definitely. Right now, I'm into Kirk's The Nature of Greek Myth, which I like a whole lot. Mm -hmm. I have various common translations of Ovid, Homer, Hesiod, etc. Perhaps what I'm searching for is some that really knock you guys out. And also what texts for you are essential reading about the myths. Mm-hmm. I love some of the modern poets' takes on Homer, and he lists a few a few examples um, as well. And he says, ultimately, I'm chasing an understanding of something one of my mentors dropped on me, mythological thinking as an amateur scholar. My progress is slow, but so far I'm positing orality and the non-rational as two of my guideposts. So thank you very much. Oh, Andrew says uh, he's not on Twitter, so that's why he has emailed us. So if you want to send us an email, uh, go to our website, mythtake.blog, yes. and there's a form there that you can fill out. Uh, we should really set it up for some audio submissions, but we haven't gotten around to that yet. Hey, it's taken us three months to get to this episode. So, <laughs> Yeah, but having said that, you can very easily record an MP3 and attach it to an email and blast it to us. And yeah, we'll yeah. Um, so, or send us a note and we can set something up if you want to submit that so thank you very much andrew that um that was actually a really encouraging email because we had uh, attempted our first recording of this uh topic and we were so badly out of practice that we decided we needed a do-over so your email was very timely and very encouraging to us so recommendations yeah um i'm going to oh it's hard you wanted to recommend this well definitely the odyssey um Translated by Emily Wilson. Definitely, definitely. Um, I also am a fan. You mentioned Ovid there. We don't really deal with Roman era stuff because that's not really our area of expertise. But I really like Charles Martin's translation of Ovid's Metamorphosis. It's really fresh and uh, lively and current. Um, So that's another really great... um, I'm trying to think of what. So well, what? I had put a couple in. Yeah. So what? Yeah. Well, he does have. He's got the basics covered. So you know, you don't have to go too far. He did. He did mention Christopher Logue, and uh, he mentioned war music. I believe. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's that, and then he also has another one called All Day Permanent Red, which is uh, very good as well. Um, there, I've had in my response to you that didn't go back. I put some links into Google Books. But the first one was uh, Walter Ong's book on orality and literacy, which if you read that, then you'll know where about 65% of my brain lives most of the time, right? The way that we talk about some of this material. And what's that book of mine that you've been reading about literary criticism? Well, and theory uh, it's oh kind God. of a staple Andrew Miller's or something like that mm, yeah that, I, that yeah but that's 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 not it let's stick in the realm of myth okay well right? no I'm, I'm just thinking yeah. like for for thinking about and understanding myth there that's not it I'll have to look it's it up I'll have to look it up yeah and then the other one is Bruno Snell's The Discovery of the Mind um, those two for me were um, seminal books and I think that um, given a little bit of a read of those will be oh mm, Quite good. One's, two are poetry, and both one is classical literary theory, and then the other one is on orality and literacy. Um, for a theory slant, I uh, the the face of a hero, and uh, what's that other one? Oh, he's he's got three of them, I think. 
This is um, terrible. We, we're supposed we're, to look see, these yeah, things up. Yeah, it, we should have looked this up it, before it, we started. Hang on. It's uh, like Bruce Miller's Heroes or something like that. Bruce Meyer or whatever. That was a great, that's a great one as well. Uh, th that one I actually really learned a lot because it's very literary-based. Joseph Campbell's Goddesses and Hero so, of okay, so bases. here are going to be a couple of recommendations. <laughs> yeah, Bruce Meyer here. Joseph, Joseph Campbell, yeah. um, he's got a couple books. I have read Goddesses, Mystery of the Feminine Divine, which deals with female goddesses. Yeah, I like that Hero one. Hero of the, of the of Hero a Thousand Faces. faces. Yeah. That you've got that one, and yeah. that deals with with the hero yeah. hero ideas. Mm -hmm. um, one that's really enjoyable to read, really accessible, but packs a lot of inf information in it is yeah, Bruce book. Myers' Heroes from Hercules to Superman. Mm -hmm. So we'll put uh, we'll put some of this in the show notes mm -hmm. and uh, give you some reading to do. We hope that helps. Well, yeah, like we can just put links into yeah. um, you know in, into like an email, or we can add them into the show notes. Right? Pretty easily. So, um... How do we wrap up? How do we wrap up? I don't remember. How do we end this, end end our podcast? Oh, but just before we end it, though, mm -hmm. I want to change the music. I think, I, I want to kind of give the podcast, we're episode 27, it's January out there. I just feel the need to kind of do like a little bit of house cleaning, spruce things up a little bit. Not real physical house cleaning, but metaphorical. So, taking... Terry Eagleton's Literary Theory. There you go. The book. That's the other book. Yeah. So, we're taking listener suggestions for new kinds of theme music for, that we could use. We do... Um, ultimately, whatever we choose has to be Creative Commons, because we don't have money to pay somebody to do something or... Um, or I hate to license idea. something. I know, but we are going to be honest people. We're going to be honest academics. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. Sounds like fun. So if you have suggestions for what kinds of music you think. What kinds? Yeah, like something jazzy or something like sweeping and grandiose or like yeah. electronica, dance music. How like, about like a guy playing a plastic drum or, or something? Or no music Bang, at all. On the street. Huh? Or no music at all. Maybe no, it needs music. music. It, needs, it needs something. It needs so something. anyway, so we're just, you know, we'll stick with what we've got for now, but we're just soliciting some listener feedback. Maybe well, let our know, listeners you, have a little bit of You really tie your hands when you go to the creative comments and try to throw out the suggestions, though. But we'll see what happens. I'm not saying they have to look up the exact track. They're resourceful they like Odysseus. They could say, hey, what about something like, like whatever, and then we go and find it. Just like yeah. initially we Fun. Did. I'm just saying, we need some ideas okay. to spruce up the podcast yeah. a little bit around here. I got one. Yeah? No, no, no. No, it's going to be something smart out there, wasn't it? <laughs> I'm going to spruce up the podcast by ending it. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Hey. So you know how to get in touch with us through mythtake.blog, um, on Twitter at mythtakepodcast, or hashtag mythtake. We occasionally look at the hashtag. Um, I'm at Innes Allison. And I'm at Darren Sundstrom. Uh, also on Facebook, facebook.com slash mythtake. Mythtake or mythtakepodcast? I don't no, remember. mythtake. Well, it wasn't very consistent with our branding. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, so you can join us there. Darren uh, is the housekeeper at the uh, Facebook page, and he's been... I've been opening the curtains been, and moving a few pillows around, but, yeah, you know, for the most part, it's, it's a kind of a sleepy place, but it's really cool for if you do want to interact with the show, it's a hell of a lot easier 
to, to send a message through Facebook than it is to really go for the blog and find and click that link. But you can look go at on the there. blog too, people. Yeah, I you put can. a lot of work you, into that. You, <laughs> you can click on there on Facebook. You can leave an audio message. You can post a video message. You can write anything that you want. And you know what? I'll leave it up there and I don't even care. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, it would be great. And uh, let's Okay, go. I'm going to end this yeah. podcast before okay. Darren makes any more promises oh, we yeah. can't keep. All right. Good night. Good night. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.